1: Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Chat the six wives with Elizabeth Norton. I imagine you've all been waiting with bated breath to hear about my cycle ride. Well, it went really well. Being England, the weather forecast was super sketchy, expecting to have rain at any moment, but in the end it all.
2: Since 2013, Bombus has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and t-shirts to those facing homelessness.
1: held off and it was a lovely sunny-ish day. I set off along with about 35,000 other people, some doing the 100 mile challenge, others doing the 46 miler with me. I was aiming to do it in around three and a half hours, but it is amazing how much faster you go when you don't have to stop for lights or traffic or anything like that. Even going into enemy territory, i.e. Surrey, went well, and in the end I did the whole thing in a shade under three hours. But of course, the right aspect was only part of this whole project, because I was raising money, as you know, for the British Red Cross and their UK solidarity appeal. Thanks in part to generous donations from a few listeners, I made my target of raising £500, that's just over $650 to my American fans. The JustGiving page is still open for a little longer, so if any of you would like to donate to that, then there is still time. Turns out I am a part time podcaster, full time athlete. The all important address again is justdiving.com forward slash fundraising forward slash James Bolton 17. I would also like to thank my most recent Patreon donators, Shannon, Jenny, and Benjamin, as well as all of my existing bands of brothers and sisters. Head over to patreon.com forward slash Queens of England podcast to find out more about supporting this show. Finally, I would like to quickly let you know about what episodes I have planned out, as a few of you have been asking me on social media and by email. I am nothing if not a stubborn man who likes to stick to the rules. Kinda. So we are sticking to only covering the Queen's Consort of England. That means that after Catherine Parr, we have to bridge a gap of over 50 years until we have another Queen Consort of England and that is as part of a different royal house, the Stuarts. But, of course, I couldn't leave you hanging like that. That would be cruel. Therefore, I have some supplementals planned. First, we're going to look at Philip of Spain, the husband of England's first undisputed queen regnant, Mary I. We have spent quite a bit of time already with Mary, but the tumult in her life is far from over. In that episode, we will examine what differences were when a ruling queen married rather than a king, and what happened when Mary tried to foist an unwilling husband onto an unwelcoming realm. After that, we will move on to her sister, Elizabeth. She is famed, of course, as being the Virgin Queen, but this all did not prevent her from having quite a bit of man-drama, with suitors and favourites popping up across her four decades on the throne. Once we're done with that, I'm going to take what I believe to be a well-deserved week off before we dive in headlong into the third, and I'm afraid, final season of the Queens of England podcast, The Stuarts. Okay, so on with the show. This is the third of my chat episodes, the others being with Heather Tesco of the Renaissance English History Podcast and Claire Ridgway of the Anne Boleyn Files. Those two were laser-focused on just one of Henry's queens each, but today we're going to be examining them all. For that, we need a proper Tudor expert, someone who has written on every one of the wives of Henry VIII. And luckily, I have found just the woman. Elizabeth Norton is a British historian who largely focuses on the Tudor period. I'm very familiar with her books personally, and many of them have been part of my research from many episodes down this podcast's run. In particular, she wrote one of my two Bibles, books that cover every single English queen, no matter how obscure. That was called England's Queens, and believe me, when you are writing about some of the really obscure medieval queens, that book was a godsend. She's also written biographies of four of Henry's wives and those of you who have listened to my guest episode on the Renaissance English History Podcast about Bessie Blount will have heard me quote from her book on Henry's mistress as well. In summary, she is the perfect guest for this show and I started by asking her just why Henry had so many wives.
2: So Henry VIII is obviously England's most married monarch. Um, apart from the Anglo-Saxons, where some of those kings had three wives, um, he beats the other post-conquest totals by four wives. Um, yeah, primarily I would say it was children, um, the reason why Henry VIII married so many times. It's not the only reason. He's quite unusual amongst kings in general in that period, in that he tended to marry the women that would have been his mistress. So... Um, Francis II of France, for example, was married, first of all, to a French princess and then an Austrian princess. Um, he had plenty of mistresses, but he didn't marry them, and that, he never would have married them. So Henry VIII is unusual in that respect. And I think partly it's because he could choose to marry who he wanted to. Um, he got into the habit of marrying for love, effectively. He thought that he was in love with Catherine of Aragon at the wedding. He'd known her since childhood. Anne Boleyn, Jane Seymour, of course, were chosen for love. Um, the Anna marriage went to horribly wrong, mainly because Henry hadn't met her before the wedding. Then Catherine Howard and Catherine Parr again were women that he'd known and decided that he was in love with. So I think he personally he was almost fought for choice, really. Um he would marry a woman that he found attractive and then someone else.
1: Yeah, I definitely get that that feeling. You're going through all the medieval one, um, kings and things, you you do get sort of drilled into you, particularly at university, that it's it's very much all a very cold, sort of contractual thing. And you're told to disregard any thoughts of love, you know, love is irrelevant. And with Henry it's lo- love or I, I almost think it's more the idea of love that fascinated him. Um he seems to, to almost persuade himself into into these sort of situations because it's the sort of the chivalrics, the Arthurian thing to do to find this damsel and make her a queen. And he also seems to, for someone who seems to have quite a thin skin, he seems to find, love to find women who disagreed with him or challenged him, but never quite got on board with that once they became a queen. It was something that was very fascinating in The Chase, but not so wonderful uh, on the throne. Uh, particularly, well, Anna, Anne Boleyn's obviously the, the great example of that one.
2: Yeah, I mean, Henry VIII was certainly a romantic and um, would have seen himself as a romantic at heart. He liked being in love, and he wanted to be in love with his wife, something which um, his European counterparts found quite strange. Um, Even Anna Cleves, which is his most diplomatic marriage, he hadn't met her before the wedding. He married her because he wanted an alliance with her brother. Um, He still convinced himself that he was in love with her. He had a portrait painted. um, He arranged her household. He arranged everything, and, and he even looked into... Um, ways that he could please her as a husband. So he looked into German custom to ensure that she was happy and would learn to love him in turn. So he he had a romantic notion of love, even with a woman that he'd never met. It's very much based in courtly love, which is obviously the medieval tradition of um, knights wooing a, a higher status lady often. It's quite a chaste love. Henry had this idea with Anna Cleves that um, he would visit her in disguise and she would, because of the love between them, because they were betrothed, she would immediately recognize him and fall into his arms. Of course, it didn't happen like that. He arrived to meet Anne of Heath at Rochester. Um, she completely ignored him. She didn't know who he was. When he finally threw off his disguise and declared that he was the king, she obviously then bowed for him. and They spoke together. But for him, the illusion had been shattered because she hadn't recognized him. And um, he actually should have known from royal precedent it wasn't necessarily a good idea. His great-uncle, Henry VI, had visited his betrothed wife, dressed as a squire, carrying a letter from the king. And Margaret um, Margaret his fiancée, kept him on his knees the entire time and completely ignored him. So it's not a very happy precedent. But, I mean, in general, Henry had a very eclectic taste in women. So, I mean, Anne, Anne Boleyn is very different to James Seymour. James Seymour is very different to the next English wife, Catherine Howard. Um, so you couldn't always pinpoint what Henry's type would be. So you get the fiery Anne Boleyn who disagreed with him. You get the more demure Jane Seymour, as far as we can tell. Um, you then get Catherine Howard, who seems fairly uninterested in politics. So he's very eclectic. You can't really, you can't really put your finger on what, what necessarily made Henry VIII choose a woman to be his wife.
1: No, I think that I, I find, and I find that completely fascinating. A slightly sort of um to turn the question around a little bit I had a question from and I'm going to mangle the pronunciation of this person's name I think it's pronounced Linos who asked it was made, she met, her main focus was actually on Jane Seymour and why did um, why did she marry Henry after what had happened to Anne Boleyn and I think I sort of make it into a more general question of so we focus why Henry married these women but why did these women agree or to the extent that they were allowed to agree to marry him um, the famous story I, I loved finding out was, um, we're not sure if, it, as usual, we're not sure if it's true, but when um, Henry was trying to marry Christina of Denmark before he ended up marrying Anne Boleyn, uh, Anne of Cleves, sorry, she said, I would marry him if I had two heads. <laughs> um, yes. <Yeah. laughs> what was the attraction of marrying, he- I mean, obviously, what was the attraction if he was the king? But did you, to what extent do you think it was their will to marry him and how much of it was a, a forced...
2: Um, I mean I think it's quite varied about why the reasons for the wives marrying Henry. Um Catherine of Aragon, his first wife, um, she'd known him since childhood, she'd been since his childhood. She'd been betrothed to him since the death of his brother Arthur, her husband. Um, so she always thought it was her destiny to be Queen of England and to marry Henry. So, I mean, for her there was there was not really she would never have turned down Henry. Um He was also young and attractive at that point. She probably was in love with him. Um, Anne Boleyn, of course, the attraction may well have been in Henry himself. Again, he was still young. He was the most handsome prince in Europe, according to accounts. One account said that he would make a pretty woman. For example, he was very handsome and very athletic. So that may be part of the attraction for Anne Boleyn. We know that Anne was trying to make an advantageous marriage as well. She was, she tried to marry the heir to the Earl of Northumberland first, and then obviously Henry VIII was the best match in the kingdom. So partly political, partly possibly attraction with Anne Boleyn. Jane Seymour. Um, Jane Seymour may well have considered becoming Henry's mistress, but obviously when Anne Boleyn had a miscarriage early in 1536, it changed everything effectively it meant that there was a possible vacancy for New Queen and Jane rose to fill it. Um, when Jane agreed to become Henry's wife, she, Anne Boleyn hadn't yet been executed or even arrested. We, we know um, from sources that Henry and Jane had promised to marry each other before Anne's arrest. So it, it probably came as a surprise to Jane quite how brutal Henry was in what he did to Anne Boleyn. Um, It was unheard of for a king to execute his wife. It never happened in England before. So Jane, I think we can say that Jane didn't necessarily know that Anne was going to be beheaded. Um, It probably would have put her off, I would think. We know later on during the Pilgrimage of Grace, which is a rebellion against Henry VIII, Jane Seymour actually tried to speak out for the rebels, and Henry told her to hold her tongue and reminded her of the fate of Anne Boleyn. Um, Shapui, the imperial ambassador, says that that is enough to... Um, a woman who's not very secure. So it's quite, it seems quite likely that Jane agreed to marry Henry before she knew that he was going to kill his wife, and after that, partly kept in line through fear. Anna Cleves had no choice in marriage to Henry. She was a diplomatic bride. Her brother told her she was marrying Henry, and off she went. We do know that she, from the German sources, um, the letters of the, ambassador from complete, Carl Haas, make it clear that she didn't want to be divorced from Henry and later on she sought remarriage marriage with him and considered herself to be his true wife. So it was, a, it was very shameful for Anne to be, for her marriage to be annulled so it, it seems likely that she did cling on to the idea of her marriage to Henry. Catherine Howard, he was the king. I think that's as far as we can go, she clearly wasn't in love with him. He was very overweight by that stage, and very poor health, and she was a young teenage girl. I think it's pretty clear that she married him because he was king, and she, that made her queen, and she got given jewels and blesses. Catherine Parr didn't want to marry Henry VIII. Um, there's a source that says that she said she preferred to be his mistress when he proposed. We also have a poem written by Henry um, when, he's, when he was courting Catherine in which he's, he's attempting to persuade her to marry him. She wanted to marry Thomas Seymour, but he couldn't really turn down the king. So I think it's all it's a bit of a mixture, really. Um, I think in general, his position as king may, meant it, it was impossible for a woman to turn him down, and mostly a woman wouldn't turn him down, even if they knew what had happened to the previous wives. Obviously, Christina of Denmark did, pretend, did apparently make the remark saying she had two heads one bit the King of
1: England is I agree. It's it's interesting that it is a mix of forced or semi forced uh and 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 choice. Uh I d I I don't know that many of them really had much of an option in the sense that, you know, once the king asks you 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 have to say yes. I think Anne Boleyn is possibly the greatest example of um she kind of engineered the situation. Um to
2: you can see the pressure that she's under from Henry VIII's love letters, which survive. So, I mean, it was it was tricky for her. I mean, he was he was married, and she retreated home to Heber Castle, but she was bombarded with letters, and it's clear that he wasn't going away.
1: Yeah, I uh, I I did a little um, supplemental reading out all of those letters, and some of them are particularly um, graphic, to say
2: the mm, least. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was very. He's very
1: interested in Anne. <laughs> very, very much <laughs> so. So, um, moving on a little bit from there, I was thinking we could talk about um, what was, are there any sort of similarities between all six wives. I don't think there's necessarily one that sort of you can sort of string them all and say they were all this, but I think there are definitely some. Some similarities between groups of them. So we have some were particularly um, tradition I call difference like between traditionalists and reformists, reformers. So people like you know Catherine of Aragon, uh, in particular, uh, was obviously a very straight Catholic. Then you have um, Jane Seymour, who, and I think Jane Seymour, who's kind of in the middle, even though her, a lot of her family was quite traditionally Catholic. It's it's difficult to tell because, you know, her brother ended up being, you know, a huge Protestant influence. And Catherine Parr, obviously, too. And then you have Catherine Howard and and of Cleves, who seem to be kind of content to just go along with whatever's going on. And you also have um, English queens and foreign queens. It's quite unusual in this period that we have so many English queens I mean, in the Middle Ages. It was almost unheard of. Um, I think it was there was from Henry the First to I think Elizabeth Woodville they were all they were all foreign uh, and then Henry ended up marrying four English and then you also have um, sort of younger queens versus more experienced ones um, particularly Catherine Howard being the great example of the young uh, and maybe sort of Anne of Cleves as well though it was not so much her age but she was quite an inexperienced person particularly in, in sort of English culture. Um, so I was wondering if you, you saw any, of, uh, want to expand on any of those and any other sort of similarities or trends that you see between them?
2: Yeah, um, I mean, there are, you can certainly group the queens um, into sort of various groups. I mean, the most noteworthy thing, as you say, is the fact that four of Henry's six wives were English. Um, in the post-conquest period, you say, um, Elizabeth Woodville, the wife of Edward IV, was English. Other than that, Henry IV's first wife, who wasn't the Queen, was English, and King John's first wife, Isabella of Gloucester, who was very briefly technically Queen, but never given the title of Queen, was English. Everybody else was, was foreign-born, and that was the way things worked. Kings didn't marry English women. Kings married foreign princesses to arrange an alliance, and that was how it worked originally with Henry. So Catherine of Aragon, he married her partly because he wanted to get married, because he wanted to assert himself as an, as an adult king, but he also wanted an alliance. Catherine was the daughter of Ferdinand of Aragon and his wife, Isabella, Queen of Castile. Um, so she was she was about the best match in Europe, other than her elder sisters. Um, but the English queens, they could obviously bring no alliance. Um, Henry was their king. He needed to do what he wanted to, so it's interesting to see them as a group. But I think what's most striking about them as a group is that actually they're very diverse. I mean, actually, they're amongst the most diverse of Henry's wives, Anne Boleyn, Jane Seymour, Catherine Howard, Catherine Park, which sort of brings us into other groupings. So you mentioned religious groupings. Um, it's quite it's quite tricky to talk about religious divisions um, as sort of facts in the Henry Rain, because obviously the Reformation was only just beginning. Um, so Anne Boleyn... We know she was interested in religious reform. Um, we've got quite a lot of evidence for that, but you can't call her a Protestant, especially because Protestantism didn't exist at that point. Um, the first Protestant queen is Catherine Parr, very definitely, who was obviously the last one and the one who survived into the next reign. She had the first Protestant royal funeral in 1548. But we can certainly see some as reformers and some as, as more traditional. So Catherine of Aragon, very much traditional. Jane Seymour, what we know of her is traditional. She attempted to intercede for the rebels in the Pilgrimage of Grace, who were Catholic or traditional rebels, um, trying to defend the traditional church. Um, we also know that she attempted to save some of the nunneries from the closing. Um, Catherine Howard, probably traditional. There's nothing to indicate any interest in reform. Anna Cleves is a bit more is a bit more tricky. She was Catholic, um, not Protestant. A, l- a lot of um, people mistakenly think she was protestant because um she's a german princess and she came from she was sent effectively as the match that the schmalkaldic league sent which was a protestant league. she was she was their alliance the price of their alliance with henry but cleves wasn't protestant cleves was a catholic state and so anne was catholic but she does seem to have conformed more or less during the religious changes so you know you can't there's nothing to indicate that she had any interest in reform, but she's certainly not steadfast in her faith during Edward's reign, for example. So again, you can you can group the wives, but again, they're all quite diverse in how they reacted. Again, so I think I mean I do think really you have to look at them as six individual women, really, and it's difficult to be too sort of strong with with looking for the similarities
1: yeah i i hadn't thought of it like that and you obviously you should it's easy in history i think to so, stop thinking of these people as humans and start and think of them as just cari- you know letters on a page or pictures in a portrait and because I I, I I mean just thinking about Catherine parr um i the only image i ever have had of, have of her in my head is the the famous one with her and that you know the big hat and the really white face. And she sort of doesn't look she looks very sort of m- that sort of matronly, nursey personality that she's so often and rather lazily given in sort of a lot of the stuff, particularly when I was learning it at school. And then you sort of look at other one pic- portraits that I've sort of come across with research in the episodes and she looks suddenly looks a bit like Queen Elizabeth. You know, she's she's got you know got very beautiful she's got the, this beautiful you know, beautiful hair. And she and she looks young. She wasn't that. She wasn't old when she married Henry. I, I, I from from all the stories, I assume she was about his age. I mean, no, not at, at all. Not, she's not. Always... Um,
2: Catherine, yeah, Catherine Parr's named after Catherine of Aragon because her mother was one of Catherine of Aragon's greatest friends. So that shows the generation
1: gap. Yeah, he did. I mean, yeah, because he didn't. He, he tended to marry aside from. Uh, Catherine Howard, he seemed to always marry women around the same age. He didn't tend to marry women in sort of mid-twenties.
2: Um, no, I mean, actually, Henry Gates' tastes run more towards the older woman. Effect. I mean, they're not, you know, they're not older than him, but he tended to marry women towards their late 20s, sometimes 30s. And Catherine Howard's a bit unusual that he went so young, because mostly the women he's interested in are at least mid-20s which is older by it stands of the time. Shapui, the imperial ambassador, actually makes quite a barb comment about Jane, saying he'd be surprised if a woman could have been so long at Henry's court and still be a virgin. So, you know, it was quite unusual that she was an unmarried woman. It suggests she was on the shelf a bit.
1: Well, I think it's also a sign that, uh, I think a reason for it is also the reasons why he married, because uh, I remember when I was going through the Middle Ages and it was 12-year-old, you know, 12, 13, 14-year-olds, always all the time, some of them being married, you know, betrothed when they were about eight. I can't remember her name. The one that married Richard.
2: The, the Isabella yeah. yeah, Isabella Valois, six.
1: <laughs> yeah, that springs to mind particularly. Picture, yeah. um, right, but obviously, two. If, but these these that you don't tend to get that situation unless you're marrying for alliance for advantage. Whereas if you're marrying the people you know, the people you meet, the people you're attracted to, um, then they're of, they're often going to be. Uh, at least, uh, you know, at least old enough to be at court and to be out in society.
2: Yeah, and to be accomplished enough to attract the king in the first place. I mean, you know, he was he he was a very intelligent man and um, interested in music and um, dancing and literature and all sorts. So you know, it, it took quite an accomplished woman, apart from perhaps Catherine Howard to attract him, really, in the first place. And Catherine Parr is the first woman to be public, the first English woman to publish under her own name, for example.
1: It is interesting how I think Anne of Cleves and Catherine Howard are such outliers in many ways to to Henry's experience. Now, Anne of Cleves in the sense that he never met her and Catherine Howard in the sense that it seems to be almost purely a, a physical attraction.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Catherine Howard is, is Henry's midlife crisis. I always think. Um, you know, he sort of, he went out, and um, now these days he's used to go and buy a sports car. He went and married a 15-year-old. Um, but it's, yeah, I mean, she's she's a very off-the-wall choice, completely, completely wrong as queen. You know, I mean, I, she was, it's pretty clear that Catherine was guilty of the crimes that she was accused of, we know that she wasn't a virgin when she married Henry, that she had other lovers. Um, we although she denied adultery of Tom's Culpepper, if it wasn't adultery, it was incredibly close. Um we know that she was guilty. But in on the other hand, I mean I always think really that it's Henry that's largely culpable for what happened because he married this woman and well this girl. You know, she's she was hugely inexperienced in you know becoming a queen. She didn't know what she was doing and really she was just totally inappropriate. So yeah, she's definitely an outlier. And of course Anne of Cleves it um, should have been the traditional choice of bride. It should have been that he married her, um, they got along okay, they had a couple of children, Then he died and she was being dowager. But obviously, Henry had got used to picking his own brides by then and had other ideas. But again, she's quite unusual.
1: Okay, I'm going to move on now to possibly um, the hardest... Well, I think the second hardest question that I'm going to ask you today. And that's, um, which do you think was the most successful? And of course, the main... <laughs> The main thing you need to do when you uh, answer this question is to define success. Yeah. I, I remember my I remember my history essays. So I usually I usually think of success in a queen uh, as in terms of how many, you know, how many sons and children did they have? Um, what did they bring to the marriage in terms of money, alliances, that sort of thing? How popular were they and how moral they were, which certainly in the Middle Ages tended to go hand in hand, and what kind of influence they brought to bear on on the king although that wasn't always considered the most important thing at the time it's sort of considered now the most important thing to us
2: yeah i mean if you'd asked henry the eighth who his most successful queen was he would have said jane seymour hands down um, she's a woman that he chose to be buried with um, she was the mother of his son so she did everything that a queen is supposed to do in that period she had a son she was largely quite quiet and decorative didn't seem to do very much but having a son was absolutely crucial, and she did that, so she's the most successful. But I don't think that's a very satisfactory answer these days, and I don't think it's one that most people would, would accept, really. And particularly with hindsight, the fact that her son didn't go on to continue the dynasty, we might be, the answer might be different if Edward had lived to be 50 and had seven sons, all of whom had their own children. But obviously, he didn't. He died at 15. Um, So then we sort of have to think about what else. What else is success? And you went through some areas that can be seen as success. Um, I mean, partly success, given there were six wives, is in surviving Henry. Um, Catherine Parr survived Henry, but not by very long. She died in childbirth the following year. So, but Anne of Cleves survived Henry by ten years after he died. So, I mean, arguably she's the most successful. She's the last to die of the six wives, and she died. Um, having cemented her place in the English royal family, she appeared, she last appeared in public in Queen Mary's coronation procession. So, I mean, arguably, she's the most successful. Henry gave her a good pension when they when their marriage was annulled. And although inflation caused that to lose its value, she was still pretty comfortably off in her later years and I mean, obviously didn't get her head chopped off. So um, arguably Anne of Cleves is one of the most successful, but obviously as a queen she was the least successful. Their marriage wasn't even consummated. Henry couldn't stand her. Um, So then you have to sort of look at the others. Um, Catherine Parr, she comes across as quite successful. To modernise, she helped raise royal children, particularly Elizabeth. She survived Henry. She helped further the Protestant Reformation. She published under her own, her own name. But again, I mean, her life her life was very abruptly cut short by childbirth in 1548, so she didn't do nearly everything that she wanted to. And she's, I think Catherine Parr's, the popular perception of Catherine as a nursemaid isn't really what Catherine a woman was like. And actually her character is quite, it's a lot more complex. So it's difficult to see her just as the mother to Henry's children's stepmother and this religious woman. There there were many more facets to her character. Catherine of Aragon. if she'd had a son, she would have been incredibly successful. She was the archetypal medieval queen, really. Um, The daughter of two monarchs brought alliances. She was the aunt of the Holy Roman Emperor. Hugely successful in her day. Um, In those respects, she was a great queen, um, was regent. When Henry went to France and defeated the Scots at Flodden and killed the king. So hugely successful, but she didn't have a, a surviving son. Anne Boleyn. I and mean, she was successful in winning the king. She was successful in giving birth to Elizabeth the who's the greatest Tudor monarch. Um, but she got her head chopped off, so that sort of discounts her as well. So it's quite, it is quite difficult. If I had to plump for one, I think I'd have to go either with Jane Seymour, going with the the contemporary definition, because you know, it's difficult to escape that, or I think probably Catherine Parr in that she was the queen that survived and she was also regent and she raised the royal children, she was very much involved in religious, religious reform. But it, it, it's, a, it's a very, very tricky question.
1: Yeah, I think I, I'd written, I'd gone on similar lines to you, I'd written down, I'd hedged my bets even more and I went with three. And I went with Catherine uh-huh. Parr, Jane Seymour. I also went with Catherine of Aragon, just because she lasted. She lasted longer than everyone else combined, um, which I think can't be ignored. Um, no, she did,
2: but, but she didn't give a king without sons an heir.
1: Yeah, which is, is the big is the big yeah. the big problem. Um, so I think she's she's the one. I think I said she ticked every box apart from the most important box.
2: Yeah, yeah, I agree, I agree. She's she's perfect
1: otherwise. Whereas, whereas Jane Seymour um ticked only one box, but it was the most important one. Yeah, so
2: Yeah, a huge box to tick, the the giving the king an heir when he didn't have brothers. You know, if he had if he had a brother, then it would be a different story again, I think. But yeah, I, I agree. Catherine Rargan, the problem is the lack of the son, otherwise perfect.
1: Yeah. I, I mean I, I do love a good good queen in the in the medieval notion of it i think it's also very difficult i find particularly with the medieval ones you know if you read the chronicles they all talk about piety and they all you know being a successful queen was all seen as being um the most piety is so important to them and i found it very difficult because i i use these these the four things i said to you i use the ones i i use internally to to sort of judge them and it's almost impossible to judge anyone other than say Catherine of Aragon on piety because religious tradition is so in flux that one person's heretic is another person's um prophet almost
2: yeah so. absolutely i mean Catherine Parr was incredibly pious but she was a protestant so um, she's certainly not in the same vein as Catherine of Aragon
1: yeah exactly okay so moving on a little um Henry obviously had six wives. That's why we're here, and uh, he had two of them killed. One of them n- semi-neglected to death, if we're being harsh. Uh, one died in childbirth, and two uh, outlasted him. What what do you think Henry's reaction was to the deaths of his wives? We um, obviously there are they're varied ones. Some involve wearing yellow clothing. Um, obviously, he's a very a sort of impulsive person, so he often had people killed and then almost regretted it. What do you think Henry's reaction was to what happened what happened with his with these women that he married?
2: So I, I think um I mean you alluded to the death of Catherine Raragan where Henry celebrated the death wearing yellow. Um she obviously died three years after she her marriage had been annulled and she'd effectively been locked up and mistreated. Um, Henry was not at all bothered that she died he actually said that God be praising the grief from the threat of war with obviously her, her nephew is a Holy Roman Emperor so for him it was a really good thing that Catherine had died because it meant that the Emperor wasn't going to invade England and try and force him to take Catherine back um, Anne Boleyn's death um, I mean it's, there's a great deal of argument about how involved Henry was in the plot against Anne um, I, I tend to view it that it's, I mean, it's clear that she wasn't guilty of the charges. They don't stack up anyway. Um, you know, the actual specific charges, which give dates and places to uh, her incest and her adultery, they they don't, they're not correct. She wasn't staying in the places on all the occasions. Um, it's it's pretty clear that they're trumped up charges to get rid of her. And um, some people lay the blame solely at Cromwell or in some his co-conspirators, including Chafey. I think it's it's really impossible to bring down the Queen without the King say so, and I find it very hard to believe that he didn't know that they were trumped up. Um, There's a comment by one of the ambassadors that says that he's the most cheerful cuckold he's ever seen, effectively. So Henry wasn't too concerned that Anne was going to the Tower. I think he knew that she was innocent. So um, because of that, I think we can safely say that Anne was in the way by being alive, and so Henry wasn't bothered by her death. He became engaged to Jane Seymour the day after her death, so he clearly wasn't particularly upset. Jane Seymour's death, on the other hand, um, Henry is very upset. Um, she'd just given birth to their son. Um, there's a, a reference where um, Cromwell is sent for to, to comfort the king um, because they don't think that Henry is going to that, sorry, that Jane is going to survive the night when she's dying. Um, at one stage, he says that he's going to leave Hampton Court the next day, whether the Queen amends or not. Um, if she dies, if she if she gets better, then he wants to get away. And if she dies, he couldn't bear to stay there anyway if she doesn't get better. So it's pretty clear that he's upset about Jane's death. Um, why wouldn't he be really? She's just giving him a son. That said, it's, there's no evidence that his relationship with Jane is any particularly strong love match. She's not the love of his life like Anne Lynn was. Anna Cleaves obviously outlived him Catherine Howard when Henry heard about her adultery he called for a sword to cut off her head himself so I think we can be pretty clear he wanted rid of her Um, he could could have got rid of her in a a less bloody way I mean he he could have had the marriage annulled based on a pre-contract with Francis Deerham so saying that she'd effectively married Francis Deerham's wife would have got Catherine off the hook Um, but he wanted her dead and then, obviously, Catherine Parr survives. So, I think Jane Seymour is the only wife that Henry grieved for.
1: Yeah, I think I, th- I definitely think that it's true, and it speaks to a, a person who seems to find the people around him rather disposable. You sort of sometimes find with Henry because he's such a big personality. Sometimes you get sucked in. I think.
2: Yeah, I mean, there was a lot. There were a lot of executions at Henry's court. Lots of people that Henry knew and liked he had executed at some point. He was very changeable
1: um again further to this there's uh, i had a question from uh from wendy uh, on the facebook page who asked whether the uh queens uh, i assume she's referring mainly to uh anne boleyn and uh catherine howard were they allowed to beg for forgiveness i guess also in, it would be in the case of catherine of aragon although she didn't really beg for forgiveness she more begged for him to see sense
2: um yeah i mean there was they, they weren't going to get mercy effectively um anne boleyn at first Thought that she would be sent to a nunnery, she may have been promised that as a means to get her to cooperate with the annulment of her marriage, because Henry annulled their marriage two days before the death. Um, but obviously, he then had her executed anyway. Um, so there's no evidence that she was given the chance to beg for mercy. She seems to have, she wanted to live, and the fact she thought she'd be sent to a nunnery, she wasn't accepting of her death. But there wasn't any way out. She was condemned to death, and she died. Catherine Howard was um, hysterical when she was arrested, as Anne was as well. Um, Catherine was obviously it took a longer time between arrest and execution for Catherine. On the night before she died, she asked for the block to be brought to her room so that she could practice with it to ensure that she didn't disgrace herself. But by most accounts, she didn't say very much on the scaffold. She was too nervous and upset, effectively. So um, Catherine Howard wasn't given any opportunity to beg for mercy. She wasn't even given a trial. Anne Boleyn had a trial and at least did have a show of defending herself, even though it was largely a foregone conclusion. Catherine Howard was attainted by Parliament, so there was no trial for her. There was never going to be any way out for Catherine.
1: Yeah, I um, did. Oh no, I, I'm, I'm thinking of Tom because Thomas Cromwell um, has a particularly tragic. Sort of letter begging for forgiveness as well but i can't think of uh I, catherine had definitely definitely didn't want i can't remember if anne boleyn wrote whether he she wrote to him from the tower there is a letter isn't there
2: there is a there is a letter um yeah it's it's to the king and the lady in the tower that's what it's asf- ascribed on top by um Cromwell's in Cromwell's hands it's amongst his papers. Um, it looks a lot like a forgery. There's a lot of debate over it, and um, I'm, I'm pretty dubious about it. If I'm honest. Um, she signs her name as Anne Boleyn, and not as Anne Green, for example. And it's very accusatory and a very long letter. It would, I, it would be a very not a sensible letter to write to a king who is going to have you executed regardless and is in a position of power over your infant daughter and also your parents. We know Anne was very close to her mother, and also your surviving sister and all other relatives. It's, it's not very sensible to write accusing the king, effectively, of murdering you um, when he's going to be in charge of your daughter and your family. So I think it's, it's pretty unlikely that it's a genuine letter. It's, it's possible. It's argued over. She's very clever. On the scaffold, and makes a very sort of um, acceptable speech. She um, asks people to pray for the king, and she says that he's a good prince and he's been a great prince to her. Um, But it's kind of what she doesn't say. The most important point of her speech is she says um, that if anyone meddles in her cause, she asks them to judge the best, which effectively means I'm innocent as far as you can go in a scaffold speech. So, yeah, I, I would take... Anne Boleyn's supposed letter from the tower with a pinch of salt. I would look at her scaffold speech and also William Tinkson's
1: reports. Yeah, I I, I I would tend to agree. Uh, I, I found her her um her scaffold speech very moving. I was I was a bit disappointed with um with Catherine Howard because I would always believed the uh, wife of Culpepper story. And then, when, and then when I did my research, I was very disappointed to find out that that didn't happen. It was very it was very sad.
2: It, it would be, yeah, it would be a great story. Um, actually, when they were arrested, um, Catherine, Culpepper and Lady Rochford just blamed each other. It, it, it doesn't really look like it was a great romance, to be honest. Catherine and Culpepper, so they certainly turned on each other quite quickly. Um, but it would be great. Yeah, they did, they did. So it would, it would be great if it was true. But actually, from what we know, it seems like she barely said anything really. It's just
1: terrified. So the final um, listener question is uh, from Diane, who wrote um, this uh, as a comment on the website, and this is a very speculative question. Um, and she asks, "What would uh, Catherine of Aragon and, and Anne Boleyn think of their daughters' reigns if they if they were indeed looking down, looking down from heaven, or if they just had some sort of knowledge? Um, what, what do you what do you think they would have made of their respective daughters' reigns?" I think
2: they both would have been incredibly proud, actually. Um, it was Catherine of Aragon's dearest wish that her daughter would succeed Henry. Um, she was the daughter of a female monarch, so she couldn't see any, any problem with a with reigning queen. Um, she raised Mary for queenship and wanted her to be queen after her. Um, she, Mary was the focus of her life, and Henry, but Mary was what kept Catherine going. Actually, the pair were banned from seeing each other during the divorce but they used to correspond and so Catherine was always focused on Mary I think she would have been very very proud firstly that Mary won the crown secondly that she attempted to bring back um, England's allegiance to Rome and also the traditional faith which obviously was a huge thing in Catherine's life Catherine was hugely pious um I can't I don't think Catherine would necessarily had any concerns about the burnings um the burnings during Mary's reign were, were seen as a last resort and seen as um, saving these people's souls, effectively. So, you know, it's difficult to, you have to kind of look at them in a contemporary viewpoint. As far as Mary was concerned, it was the right thing to do to burn these Protestants. I should think the Protestants had other ideas. But, so I think Catherine would have been very pleased. I think she would have been pleased that Mary married Philip of Spain, who was Catherine's great-nephew. Obviously, she would have been disappointed there wasn't an heir, but I, I can't see that Catherine would have been anything other than a proud mother, really. And with Anne and Elizabeth, um, again, I, I, Anne surely would have been proud of Elizabeth. Elizabeth is the greatest Tudor monarch, one of the greatest monarchs England or Britain ever had. Um, presided over a very stable country. She did incredibly well. Um, Anne Boleyn must have been proud of Elizabeth, and I think Elizabeth thought of her mother. We know that Elizabeth wore a ring and when it was opened after her death, it was found to contain a a portrait of both Elizabeth and Anne, which is a pretty clear evidence of what Elizabeth felt about her mother. Um, Elizabeth's quite similar to Anne, a very intelligent woman, political, interested in religion. Um, I think the pair would have got on and and Anne would have been nothing but proud.
1: I I, I would definitely agree. I think... uh... The two things I, the two things I wrote for this, were proud they made it and proud of the religious convictions. I think, I think making yes, it is yes. definitely is definitely that they they you wouldn't have bet on either of them at almost any point after their mothers were were, were well were killed or, or died, and it's it's interesting to see this sort of slow reintegration. Of them, it sort it start. I mean, it starts even with Jane Seymour, but it it doesn't really take off um, for a long time. And obviously, it, it's all down to Edward dying, dying young and and childless. But I think yes, the, their their survival, even getting to be queen, and you know, and also they had to survive. Mary had to to fight off and Dudley and and Lady Jane Grey and that. And then Elizabeth had to survive Mary as well, um, which she did barely. Um, so I think definitely, I think pride is definitely the right word. Uh, I, that's annoying. I was hoping we'd disagree on something. This is really irritating.
2: Yeah, yeah. No, sorry. Um, yeah, I, I mean, they're almost, they're almost their mothers in a, in a subsequent generation, really, to be honest. which is I think that's part of the problem between Mary and Elizabeth during Mary's reign, to be honest. Because Mary was always actually quite kind to Elizabeth. Um, After Anne's death, Mary slightly took her under her wing a a little bit, so um, she would write to Henry and say she was a promising child and was nothing but kind to her. She always always accepted she was her sister, Um, although later on there are rumours that Mary said that Elizabeth looked a bit like Mark Smeaton, who was one of Anne Boleyn's supposed lovers. But the relationship really deteriorated during Mary's reign, and I think it's largely because Elizabeth was so like her mother really and it was um, Mary hated Anne Boleyn and probably always hated her I would think she'd had no reason not to so it, it it's diff- i mean, it must have been very difficult for Mary having this much younger half-sister whose birth had caused her so much pain and was the daughter of Anne Boleyn at her court and not only that but she's also much younger much prettier and more intelligent really
1: <laughs> I find Mary Tudor just such such a fascinating woman partly because she's been you usually end up, I find, finding people fascinating when it turns out they're nothing like you were expected, or nothing like you were taught. Um, particularly, like, if you take their hor- horrible history cap- caricature, and, you know, Mary has been demonised thanks to uh, you know Protestants as being this you know, bloody Mary, this m- murdering horror, and yet actually she seems to be just the most remarkable woman. And... You know, yes, she did. She did burn heretics, but Elizabeth burned heretics as well,
2: or pressed them to death. <laughs> yeah, um, Mary had a very difficult life um, for for a royal princess. Um, her parents' divorce blighted her life. There's no doubt about it. She sided with her mother, um, which was, by contemporary standards, not the right thing to do. Um, there's a letter from the Duke of Norfolk where he. Henry, so I think it's Henry, maybe Lester Palmer. Um but he's, sort of, he's gone to see Mary or something, and she's so often, he says that if she'd been his daughter, he would bash her head against a wall until it was as soft as a baked apple. And daughters were supposed to honour their parents, but particularly their father, and do what their father said. So if your father said, I was never married to your mother and you're illegitimate, actually you were supposed to say, oh, okay, sorry to hear that. And Mary didn't. So her relationship with Henry was very, very poor for a long time. Um, she was sent to serve Elizabeth to, to emphasise the point that she was Henry's illegitimate daughter, not the legitimate princess. Um, they were reconciled during Jane Seymour's reign, uh, largely due to Jane Seymour, but the price of reconciliation was hugely high for Mary. She was effectively told that if she didn't sign a document confirming that her parents had never been married and that she was illegitimate, she would be executed. So she did sign it. Actually, the document survives and it's blotted with her tears, which shows the state she was in when she signed it. She never forgave herself for signing that document. Um, When she became queen, she overturned her parents' annulment, um, so making her again legitimate. So it was always on her mind. She had a very difficult time. I always think with Mary, she was very unlucky that she was Thirty when Henry VIII died, whereas Elizabeth was much much younger. So Mary, her youth was already passing really when Henry died, whereas Elizabeth still had her whole life ahead of her. So I think in that respect, Mary's sort of doubly unlucky really that by the time she became queen, she didn't have much time left.
1: Yeah, I I, I would again once again I would. Agree, and so let's let's try and have some have more of a fight here, because I'm on to the the final question and the most contentious, uh, which is who's your fave, uh, and I'm going to mean and make you go first.
2: Okay, um, this one's always picky I have I have I have two answers.
1: So I know it's very hard for you because you've written books on it. Yes, awesome. yeah.
2: <laughs> I have two. I have the one that's a more conventional choice, which is Catherine Park. Um, I like Catherine part. I think she's very interesting. Um, having done a lot more research on her for *The Temptation of Elizabeth Tudor*, which was a book about the Seymour scandal that I wrote that came out a couple of years ago, I've slightly, like you see, a different side to Catherine when you really delve in depth. Um, so she always comes across as um, a bit um, very, very sort of honourable. Um, takes on Elizabeth as her own daughter, effectively. Um, a very sort of pleasant dedicated woman Um, after Henry's death she married Thomas Seymour who was the uncle of the new king very quickly um, shockingly quickly he was later accused that he'd married Catherine so quickly that if she conceived a child it would have been unclear whether it was Henry's or his that was how soon they married Um, it was a very passionate but also quite violent relationship effectively and we know that Thomas was called an oppressor in the household and there was one incident that was related by the servants that Catherine had been in a room and a a male servant had come in to um, make up the fire and the door was closed and when Thomas discovered that he basically accused Catherine of having an affair with this servant and um, caused a real scene in the household he was diverting her funds to his own, her officers were having to pay Thomas huge sums of money from her revenue so it's It's quite, it was quite a, it wasn't really a marriage of equals, effectively. She's, I think she was quite under his thumb. She, Thomas was involved in a relationship with Elizabeth at the time. Um, He was coming into her bed in the morning and tickling her and things. And Catherine colluded to that. She knew it was going on. So what what I'm sort of getting at is a lot of this, it makes her seem more human, but it also makes her seem less sort of the perfect queen, if you like. Um, She didn't protect Elizabeth. She was involved in this, with this hugely unsuitable man and um, politically she became very active and not necessarily for the right motives. Thomas and Catherine used Edward, the young Edward who looked upon Catherine as his mother, um, to their own ends on more than one occasion. So I do like Catherine Parr, but that puts me off a bit, although it makes her more human. So I would say actually my favourite wife is Anna Keats. I think she's fabulous. Um it's it's an unusual choice. Um I, I think she's great. Anna Cleese is incredibly pragmatic when she tried to make the most of her marriage. She tried her best and when it didn't work out she was unhappy about the marriage coming to an end, but she accepted it for her pension and the payoff. So um that's why she's my favourite really. I think she was very pragmatic. I like her, she's a nice person.
1: I think in my episode on Anne of Cleves, I called, um, I sort of described the the kinds of people who choose each wife as, as their choice. And I think I called Anne of Cleves the hipster choice because it's very in vogue. It's quite in vogue at the moment. Uh, yeah. from people who've read your books. She, she has that, I mean, for me, I guess I'm going to, you know, as many of my listeners know, I'm, I'm a strong medievalist at heart. We're getting further and further away from my uh, my preferred era of the 12th century here. And the weird one that's, whose favourite medieval queen is Matilda of Scotland. Um, ah. <laughs> Uh, so th- for that reason I've, I I I say Catherine of Aragon because she is so much an, a normal queen you sort of separate these the Henry VIII's six VI wives from like every other queen in English history because they seem to be in this weird micro culture and yet Catherine of Aragon sort of stands out to me as this queen who did all the normal queenie things and so many of them because they only reigned for you know, one, two, three years they just didn't have the opportunity I would say Catherine Parr is a close second because I see her as the second most normal queen. Yes, of the yeah. yeah. She, she has, although she didn't have children, she kind of didn't need to. Um, that wasn't really the reason why she was married. Um, and so she but she did bring up the children and she has, you know, she has influence. She got to be, re- they both got to be regents. And I love queens who are regents.
2: Yes, yeah. Well, you like the children of Scotland, too. So. <laughs>
1: yeah. She's not my favourite, but I have a strong soft spot for Catherine Howard. Maybe just only just covered her, but just because she's... This isn't exactly true, this is more my mine, but she's what... You, I think if you took your average 18-year-old like from now and sort of threw them in, the stories that come out of, of the places where she grew up, at Chesham Hall and uh, Lambeth, are just magnificent the stories of, of, of the men going down to raid the kitchens of grapes and wine and then bringing them up and they had like this secret hiding place and all that stuff and then and she sort of comes along and just seems to be having a whale of a time yeah. right up until the moment where she wasn't. <laughs> all these other... you sort of, There's so much colour in her life that you just don't have in other ones who live in these sort of rigid this is how you act, this is how a queen is, this is what a lady does, and Catherine does brushes past all of it, and of course it cost her her head. I have a strong soft spot for Catherine Howard. Yeah, no, I,
2: like, I think she's interesting. I like Catherine Howard. But no, I'm, I'm, I'm an Anna Cleves person.
1: <laughs> I, I do know that neither, neither of us are, uh, are Anne Boleyn people. No,
2: I, no I, I do like Anne Boleyn. I think she's interesting, but I, I think she's a flawed individual, and I don't think that um, it makes her more human.
1: Thanks very much for coming on. It's been a, a wonderful chat. I was wondering if there's anything you wanted to plug. What what are you up to at the moment? Are you working on any, any new books?
2: Well, the main the main one is My Lives of Tudor Women, which um, came out in the UK at the end of last year. And it's coming out in the US um, in a couple of weeks. And it's The Hidden Lives of Tudor Women. So if anyone would like to buy that, that would be great. Um, it's basically it's an account of um, the life of a Tudor woman and it, every level of society and something with you, what daily life was like. So it's, it's quite a good read, quite interesting. I, I love researching it.
1: So that is all for this week. I want to thank Elizabeth Norton for coming on the... You didn't think I'd leave you hanging like that, did you? You all want to know who you have chosen as the Queens of England podcast listener's favourite wife of Henry VIII. To coincide with the recent TV series by Lucy Worsley on Six Wives... Tudor Times did its own survey of historians and historical writers on whom their favourite was. Heather sided with Elizabeth and chose Anne of Cleves, as did Tracy Borman. Alison Weir is in my corner in choosing Catherine of Aragon. Sarah Gristwood chose Anne Boleyn, and Linda Porter chose Catherine Parr. But who did you choose? Well, we had nearly 200 votes in all, and I will reveal them in reverse order. In last place, with just three votes, is Catherine Howard. Selene Jones chose her because, quote, I pity that girl for having to get in bed with the 50-plus-year-old Henry VIII. Next, with nine votes, is Henry's favourite, Jane Seymour. Grace Carruth gave her her vote because, quote, Though she does not have the most scandalous or immediately intriguing story, her gentle courage is impressive as is her astute embracing of a traditional queenly role within the tense court atmosphere she inherited. After her comes Catherine Parr, with 18 votes, possibly suffering because I hadn't finished covering her by the time the poll was done. That didn't put off Julia Rank, who chose her because she was, quote, a great intellectual and lover of the arts, and the first woman to publish under her own name. Enough said. I also really enjoyed how the latest episode brought out her light-hearted side and love of fine things. Plus, I have a great respect for good stepmothers. And yes, praising me is always going to make your message more likely to be noticed by me. Moving now into the top three, with 29 votes, we have Anne of Cleves. Jeanette Morrison said, quote, Definitely Anne of Cleves. Despite being the victim of the worst blind date in world history, she remained good-natured Calm and pragmatic. Okay, so it's serious now. In second place, with thirty seven extremely intelligently cast votes, we have Drumroll Please, kind of unnecessary because I've already given it away Catherine of Aragon. She was also the choice of my in laws, by the by. After comparing Henry to Donald Trump, Amber Engelby goes on to say that she voted for Catherine because, quote, "...she proved herself as a capable and competent leader while Henry was in France, in addition to fulfilling the more traditional queenly duties, save for that one. This series cast her in a new light for me. I enjoyed learning just how strong-willed that she was, and I admire her refusal to simply roll over to Henry's demands." I also admire her perseverance through the mistreatment she suffered from her own father's careless neglect, Henry VII's miserliness, her nephew's betrayals, and her husband's general douchebaggery. And so, our runaway with her, with 87 votes, that's 47.5% of them all, is Anne Boleyn. Obviously, there were many commenters who picked Anne. Here are a few. Tiffany Reyes identified with Anne, quote, she is the founding member of the Second Wives Club. As with most Second Wives, she is portrayed as a young tart with only marriage on the brain for money and power. There is so much more to us Second Wives. Carly Eck, who apparently has a Anne Boleyn tattoo, location unconfirmed, wrote that she loves Anne Boleyn because she was, quote, "...smart as hell and demonised into oblivion. She's overlooked in a lot of ways because of the way she died." She was passionately evangelical and very pious, gave large amounts of money to charity and obviously incredibly intelligent in the way she played the Game of Thrones for what little control women generally had over such matters. And last, but by no means least, Susan laster Millsap, who commented quite late on, chose, quote, Anne Boleyn, for many of the reasons already listed, but specifically her intellect, passion and strength. She stood firm to her goals and held her head high. So, there we are. Anne Boleyn is your favourite. You all have terrible taste. Just kidding. As I said at the top of the show, next week we start our mini-series of supplementals on the men in the lives of Mary I and Elizabeth I as we conclude our coverage of the Tudors. There are Broken Hearts, Royal Weddings, Swashbuckling Heroes, and a decent dollop of Treason to come. So I hope to see you there.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.